uproarious. Amen. Good morning, church. Good morning, church. Amen. What's the what's left of this morning? But welcome today to Church of the Redeemer. This our our precious opportunity to celebrate the Lord's presence and to bless His holy name. As you're standing, we're going to turn to Second Chronicles chapter thirty-two. Second Chronicles chapter thirty-two, and this. Um, Martin Luther King Jr. weekend, uh, we want to continue in our series of the kings that did it right and who stood up for right. And uh, thank you for the privilege you've given me to proclaim God's word to you and that invitation to your heart that you've made on behalf of the Lord that I get to be a part of. I don't take it lightly. Second Chronicles chapter 32, verse 32 some of you know I like reading the, the end of the story first. I don't like surprises. I don't know about you, but I, all right. So I'm going to read the end of the story. It says, now the rest of the acts of Hezekiah and his good deeds, behold, they are written in the vision of Isaiah, the prophet, the son of Amos, in the book of the kings of Judah in Israel. And Hezekiah slept with his fathers, and they buried him in the upper part of the tombs of the sons of David. And all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem did him honor at his death. And Manasseh, his son, reigned in his place. That is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. God, I thank you today, Lord, just for the privilege of gathering together this this day, this weekend. Thank you for the people. Uh, thank you for the heart of worship. Thank you for our worship team, Lord. Thank you for this musical combo, Lord, that helped us just experience you and know that you are here. Thank you for your word. Lord, we know that the grass grows and the grass fades away, but the word, Lord, remains forever. Help us Lord, as human beings, to both hear and proclaim your word in sincerity and in truth, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Well, tomorrow in the uh, United States, uh, we take time to remember the life of Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., born January 15th, 1929. Dr. King was known for his uh, civil, uh, civil rights, his activism, and nonviolence approach to injustice. Some of us know him for his stirring speeches, yet he was a pastor, a spiritual leader, and a shepherd. Uh, my wife and I had opportunity this past November to, to attend his church. Uh, I was in Atlanta and uh, had opportunity to go to Ebenezer Baptist Church where he's part of this long legacy of pastors. You see, Dr. King was part of pastors are kind of like in, the King, in his family. His maternal grandfather, Adam Williams, was the second pastor of Ebenezer Baptist Church. His grandmother, his grandfather on his, on his mama's side. And then his father followed serving as pastor. 
His daddy was pastor of that church. And then Dr. Martin Luther King first joined to help his, just came to help his dad. Oh, man, I'm starting to see myself in this stuff. Sorry about that. Gosh. Just came to help his dad and at some point took over to help lead the church and continued till 1968. You know, Dr. King had a, had a pastor's heart for the people. He, had, uh, he prayed for direction and sought the Lord and how he could help being, in a sense, a pastor of pastors, right? A pastor of pastors. In fact, he wrote one of the, one of the letters he wrote that I use in my course as letters from Birmingham jail. And Birmingham at the time was known in the street as Bombingham, as uh, bombs were being, uh, were being uh, exploded on, on churches uh, from our, our, our colleagues and our fellow African-Americans. And in this letter he writes, My dear fellow clergymen, I am in Birmingham because injustice is here. Anybody feel like you're here because injustice is here? I, I, I kind of feel that way. And just as the Apostle Paul, I'm going to paraphrase, left his village of Tarsus and carried the gospel of Jesus Christ to the far corners of the Greco-Roman world, so am I compelled to carry the gospel of freedom beyond my own hometown. He says, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Whatever affects one directly affects us all indirectly. And he wrote a letter to the church, and he says, if today's church does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it will lose its authenticity, forfeit loyalty of millions, and be dismissed as an irrelevant social club with no meaning for the 20th century. I'm here to say that we want to be socially relevant, and we want to be relevant and meaningful in the 21st century, as was his vision. I think history is important for us to kind of understand and apply to our lives today. It seems in many ways that we need to carry on the gospel to a secular society today. We live in a society that's, for lack of a better word, is a mess, right? We live in things that just, gosh, uh, man, uh, we study, then we wonder, why do we study history? Well, we study history, uh, the historians say, to help us understand change and how society we live in came to be. Studying history is important because it allows us to understand our past, where we came from, and allows us to understand our present, where we are, and projects us into the future because we study history. If you want to know how and why our world is the way it is today, we have to look at history for its answers. Now, I know we're not all historians, I know we all don't go to a liberal arts university, but at our liberal arts university, uh, we make students take history classes. And sometimes the students come to me and say, why do I have to take these history, all these history classes? And I remind them that history tells you who you are. History reminds you of where we've come from, and history will point you to where you are going. January 15th, 1929. Well, tomorrow is another historical moment for me. I'm going to personalize this. And perhaps some of you in this church. January 15th represents a day of Ernest V. Chavez in my life. He was born on January 15th, I think, 1929. Something like that, right? And um, many of us called him Uncle Ernie. Um, I had the privilege to grow up with my Uncle Ernie. And I used to call it Tuesday nights with Uncle Ernie. Uh, it might make no 
reference to you all, whatever, but back in the day, uh, the pastor of this church used to have a Tuesday night and a Thursday night service and a Wednesday prayer meeting. And not everyone came to the Tuesday night service, but uh, my Uncle Ernie came to the Tuesday night service, and not all of us came. Well, I came to the Tuesday night. Well, I, I probably came because I had to come. And uh, I used to sit right there, right there, Brother Juan's seat, right? My Uncle Ernie used to sit on the next seat over there, and I used to sit right there. And not everyone came to Tuesday night, so it was kind of like, I would like refer to Tuesday night with Uncle Ernie. And we would play our horns still, but we, instead of having ten of us, there might be three of us on Tuesday nights, or two of us. And uh, what a special time it was in my life, uh, growing up on the first row, on the first seat, watching him play his trumpet in worship, praying, listening to God's word. And I would sit there and watch him. The one, for one, I wanted to make sure he was awake, because he had this way of like, looking down at his Bible, and I'd always like, do like this, and then he would hit me. And then I uh, was just checking, right? Uh, but another reason why I loved those moments was because my, my Uncle Ernie, he talked very little, at least to me. But when he talked, uh, I listened. Some of us who grew up there on Tuesday nights, we used to call him Solomon. And we would sit there and say, here comes, here comes Solomon. And Solomon in the Bible was the one with the wisdom. And uh, he would help me keep me focused. So every once in a while, he'd give me the elbow in church because we didn't have technology back then, but we had, we had, we had other alternatives and resources to keep us engaged. Um, and, but I believe he was committed to doing the right thing. And like Dr. King, he was committed to being fair and to being right. And several meetings, as I was growing in my role here, he would pull me aside over there in the, that dark hall and would tell me, come here. And he would tell me, be mindful be careful, follow after the Lord. And I'm very grateful, and I listen. That's history. Well, we all have history. The Christian church has history. Last week, we began to talk about that and looking at the history according to the Chronicles in, in, second, in uh, second Chronicles. History, the Chronicles of the church, really, we could call this book. It was kind of originally written as a single book in Hebrew. It was this long book that detailed the history that was supposed to be read aloud so that it could be passed on to the next generation. Because sometimes the next generation doesn't know or hasn't experienced the same God as their forefathers. So they, they, they contain like an overview of the whole Testament process of all the kings and God's covenant people. Um, Chronicles continues about the kings and the kings that worshiped the Lord and how over this historical period gave us a chronological understanding of God and God's people. I'm not sure about you, but I'm concerned about the chronological understanding of God and God's people all the way to where we're at today because it's written for the benefit of us. And it was written for the benefit of those who had returned from exile the positive things of history with an aim to renew their hope because if they ever got down to remind them, in your history, God delivered you from Egypt. In your history, God led you through, through the Red Sea. In your history, God forgave you. In your history, God established a covenant. That's history. That's our history. That's my history. So if ever I get down and discouraged and disappointed and, 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 and disillusioned and lost, I need to remember my history rooted in Jesus Christ. 
The new generation, it's thought, had not yet experienced the Lord the same way. The people of God have forgotten their history. And we do the same thing today. We forget our history. We forget what really matters. We forget that, that God delivered you out of your own Egypt. God forgave you through Jesus Christ out of your own stuff and mess. God brought you through and made a covenant with you that I will be your God. We forget that sometimes. So in the chronicles of God's people and the record of the kings, the writers evaluate the kings basically two ways. They give an examination of the, of the kings. And it's kind of like a pass-fail, right? One, they did right in the eyes of the Lord. Or two, they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. That's always a pass-fail as a king, right? And sometimes as professors we do that pass-fail. You either got it or you don't get it. And that's kind of what we read about in Chronicles. We read that he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. Or we read he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. This evaluation in the Bible is about whether or not they served and worshipped the one true God only. In fact, if you go through the Chronicles, all the kings of the northern kingdom did evil inside of God. Nobody passed the class. And if you go through the southern part, the kings of Judah, most of them didn't pass the class either. I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's it's these positions of power or these positions of prestige. We can't do the right thing. I don't know if you see that going on in society today. People who are in power or people who have the ability to, to harass or, or to, to conduct violence, uh, they do these things because they, they can. You probably have heard of that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Well, that, that's kind of, I think, part of who we are as a human being. And the issues of Judah that occurred are probably occurring today. People living for themselves, me, myself, and I. Many of the people or the leaders of Judah had little regard for God because life was good and life was in their control. Sadly, a great many of the kings of Judah struggled with sin. Similar to us today, I think. Like I said, I think it's the abuse of power in many cases. We take advantage of other people. Why? Because we can We have politicians, movie producers, movie actors, coaches, teachers, neighbors, and the list goes on and on, who violate others, harass women, abuse children, engage in violence domestically and in the world. Second Chronicles explains all of that, how kings who did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. But Chronicles also explains that there were kings who did right in the eyes of the Lord. In the midst of the many leaders and the people doing evil in the sight of the Lord, there were some who did do right in the eyes of the Lord. And if some did right in the eyes of the Lord, then some can do right in the eyes of the Lord today. We remember last week when we read about Solomon, right? Chapter 7, verse 1 says, As soon as Solomon finished prayer, he prayed in the midst of chaos and stuff. And as he prayed, it says that the fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priest could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled in the temple as well. We can still pray like a Solomon and pray that God's fire would come down and consume our sin and also say it's because of his mercies that we are not consumed. God consumes our sins but he doesn't consume us because of his mercy. 
we read how they, in chapter 7, how they sang this great song, For the Lord is good, and His mercy endures forever. Didn't mean everything was perfect and everybody was well, but they sang, For the Lord is good, and His mercy endures forever. Doesn't mean the next generation was following all their desires and following in the footsteps, but they sang, For the Lord is good, and His mercy endures forever. Didn't mean there was no sickness in the camp, or there was no, there was no stuff happening, but they sang, For the Lord is good, and His mercy endures forever. Well, after Solomon, you come across this guy named Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat was a godly king who instituted important reforms and experienced miraculous deliverance. Then you come across this king named Joash. Joash did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, but then he turned away from God. Then you come across King Amaziah. Amaziah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord in chapter 25, yet he didn't do it with his whole heart. Then you come across Jotham in chapter 27. It says, Jotham did what was right in the eyes of the Lord according to all of his father Uzziah had done, except he did not enter the temple of the Lord. He didn't go to church. But the people still followed corrupt practices. History seems to suggest that though many choose not to do the right thing, we can choose to do the right thing. History tells us that most will not do the right thing. But some will do the right thing. Few will do what is right in the eyes of the Lord, but some will. And that brings us to Hezekiah. If you go with me to chapter 29, I shift our attention to Hezekiah, chapter 29, verse 1. Hezekiah began to reign when he was only 25 years of age. Who says young people can't serve the Lord and do the right thing? He reigned for 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abijah, trying to show you that he was human, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David, his father, had done. In spite of his, wicked, his own wicked heritage, Hezekiah demonstrated a wholehearted commitment to the Lord and led the nation in revival. Hezekiah, he was the great-grandson of Uzziah. And was preceded by Jotham and Ahaz. Uh, and then Ahaz's reign right before him, which was dead, was quite wicked. Yet Hezekiah is one of the Judah's greatest kings. Four chapters, 29 through 32, are devoted to Hezekiah's leadership. Hezekiah, in the Hebrew, the name means God is my strength. Or God has strengthened. How many, how many pseudo-Hezekiahs we have that God is my strength? You can call me today Paul Angel Hezekiah Flores because the Lord is my strength. And the Lord continues to strengthen me. So let's look what he does, right? How can we learn from history of doing the right thing? First of all, he restores worship. Chapter 29, verse 3 says, In the first year of his reign, the first year, the first month, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. The first year. We stand here in the first year uh, of the first month. And it's the first, week, the first day of the week. Hezekiah, when he ascended to the throne, the nation had been guilty of apostasy and, and subsequently experienced trouble because of it during the reign of Hezekiah's father. But it says here in chapter 29, verse 4, he brought in the priest and the Levites and assembled them in the square of the east and said to them, Hear me, Levites, 
Now consecrate yourself and consecrate the house of the Lord, the God of your fathers, and carry out the filth from this holy place. To, refer, to restore worship, we first have to carry out the filth in our life. Worship is cleaning. Do you agree that worship, every time I worship, it's a cleansing process because I'm removing all the junk in my life so I, because God is, God is cleaning me out. Worship is first cleaning. Verse 6 says, For our fathers have been unfaithful and have done what was evil in the sight of our Lord our God. They have forsaken him, have turned away their faces from the habitation of the Lord, and turned their backs. Back in the day, we used to call it backsliding or backsliding. Doing what is right is evaluating the way we are living. That's worship. Your reasonable worship. Doing what is right is asking yourself, is the way I'm living, does it make sense? Does what I do really matter? Is life about right now and this life, or is life about preparing for eternity? We can get busy and start cleaning today. Look at verse 15. They gathered their brothers and consecrated themselves and went in as the king had commanded by the works of the Lord to cleanse the house of the Lord. This morning, I don't know about you, but I experienced some cleans- cleaning going on in my life as, as, as we sang those songs and worshiped the Lord. Cleaning was coming in my life. Amen. Uh, a little while ago, I was in the hospital, and, and, and some, some, uh, the, the person we were seeing has some stuff in their, in their lungs or whatever, so you see these tubes carrying out the stuff, right? With every breath, stuff is kind of coming out. Worship is cleaning out the stuff from your life. Then worship is also about singing. Chapter 29, verse 27 says, And Hezekiah commanded that the burnt offering be offered on the altar. And when the burnt offering began, the song of the Lord began also. And, this is where we get this, the history of Church of the Redeemer, and the trumpets accompanied by the instruments of David, king of Israel, and the whole assembly worshiped, and the singer sang, and the trumpeter sounded. All this continued until the burnt offering was finished. And when the offering was finished, the king and all who were present with him bowed themselves and worshiped. Today, the first month of the year, we can restore worship. That's doing the right thing. We also can follow Hezekiah's lead in reaffirming the covenant. Chapter 30, go with me to verse 1, says, Hezekiah sent to all Israel and Judah and wrote letters to also to Ephraim and Manasseh that they should come to the house of the Lord in Jerusalem to keep the Passover to the Lord, the God of Israel. They had stopped going to church. They had stopped keeping the Passover. Passover was originally observed on the night that the children of Israel were delivered from Egypt in the Egyptian bondage when the angel of the Lord slew the firstborn males of Egypt. The Lord had commanded the people through Moses to always keep this celebration so that they would remember what the Lord had done for them. But they stopped keeping the Passover. I don't know if that's been part of your life or your observations, but it starts first with doing some of these observations. And maybe it starts, stop coming on Wednesday night or Tuesday night or stop coming a little bit on Sunday or go to twice a month. Or, or I don't know how that all really works. But they stopped observing the Passover. But not Hezekiah. He honored this command and he reaffirmed the Passover celebration. There are some things in our lives that we've gone away from doing. 
Maybe we thought, oh, that's old school, or we thought, well, that was back then. This is the new way we do things. Be mindful. When we stop praying regularly, when we stop reading regularly, when we stop worshiping regularly, we can forget what the Lord has done for us. When we reaffirm the covenant, we reaffirm the experience of joy that has come to our life. Chapter 30, verse 25 reads, The whole assembly of Judah and the priests and the Levites and the whole assembly that came out of Israel and the sojourners who came out of the land of Israel and the sojourners who lived in Judah rejoiced. So there was great joy in Jerusalem, for since the time of Solomon, the son of King of David, King of Israel, there had been nothing like this in Jerusalem. Seems like this was the first time the Passover was celebrated since Solomon left the scene. The covenant had been ignored. The promises of God had been put away because we can do things better. However, doing what is right reaffirms the covenant that God has with people. And I'm not sure about you, but for me, it brings me great joy that God has a covenant with his people. And when I'm mindful that God has a covenant with me, I'm mindful that he has forgiven me of my sins. He has healed me of all my iniquities. He has healed me of all my infirmities. And he has given me a promise of eternal life all through the covenant made through Jesus Christ. We reaffirm the experience of joy. When we reaffirm the covenant, we also reaffirm the experience of prosperity. Chapter, 20, chapter 31, verse 20 says, Thus Hezekiah did throughout all Judah, and he did what was good and right and faithful before the Lord his God. And every work that he undertook in the service of the house of God in accordance with the law and the commandments, seeking his God, he did with all his heart and prospered. Doing what is right is restoring worship. Doing what is right is reaffirming the covenant. And lastly for today, doing what is right is remaining faithful to God. Go with me to chapter 33 in this little survey or overview that we're doing here today. Chapter 33, verse 20 says, Then Hezekiah, I'm sorry, it's chapter 32, verse 20 says, Then Hezekiah, king, and Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, prayed because of this and cried to heaven. Even though Hezekiah had restored worship, and even though Hezekiah had reaffirmed the covenant, Hezekiah still faced opposition. If you read with chapter uh, 33, verse, is it chapter 33, verse 22? I'm sorry, chapter 32, verse 22, it says, So the Lord saved Hezekiah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, from the hand of Zennacherib, king of Assyria, and from the hand of all his enemies, and he provided for them on every side. Doing what is right does not mean all things will be well. Doing what is right does not mean you will never have opposition. Doing what is right does not mean that everything will work out according to your plan and everybody will like you. But doing what is right will, will cause you to remain faithful to God and his covenant. It says here that the Lord still saved Hezekiah in the midst of opposition. Hezekiah encountered opposition, but he also experienced sickness. Chapter 32, verse 24 says, In those days Hezekiah became sick. How many know Christians, God's people can become sick? 
and he was at the point of death. We can become deathly sick. And he prayed to the Lord, and he answered him, and he gave him a sign. Hezekiah had become sick, even though he was worshiping, even though he reaffirmed the covenant. And according to 2 Kings chapter 20, verse 1, the Isaiah the prophet came to him and says, Thus saith the Lord, set your house in order, for ye shall die and ye shall not recover. In the midst of his sickness, he gets this word of the Lord, you have time to set your house in order. That speaks to me. I have today to set my house in order. I don't know about tomorrow, but today I can set my house in order. Hezekiah struggled with that because he was a human being. It says that pride, once again, he rose up into the king like all the other kings. And Hezekiah did not return. He didn't make return according to the benefit done for him. For his heart was proud, verse 25 says, And therefore wrath came upon him and Judah and Jerusalem. When we are sick, we need to turn to God. Sickness has a way of making us all humble. When we can't control our health, we have to realize we need help. When we can't control our, our, our body or, or our, our mental capacities, it, it, it's a humbling experience because we can't control that. We need to come to God who can control all things. 2 Kings verse 20, chapter 20, verse 2 says, Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Behold, I will heal you. He prayed. The Lord heard, and the Lord healed. Be mindful that all physical healing is still temporal. He got healed. But as we read when we started, he ends up dying. We will get healed. The Lord will take care of us. It doesn't mean that it's going to last for this temporary life. It just does mean it's a gateway for us into heaven. Now you know the rest of the story. And Hezekiah slept with his fathers, and they buried him in the upper part of the tombs of the sons of David and all Judah. This is verse 33 of chapter 32 of 2 Chronicles. And the inhabitants of Jerusalem did him honor at his death. He restored worship, he reaffirmed the covenant, and he remained faithful through it all. Through it all, through it all. I've learned to trust in Jesus. Andre Crouch writes, and I've learned to trust in God. I think we're called to the same kind of faithful leadership today. I think history has application for us today. We are called to do the right thing in a messy world. I think history is telling me today that I have an opportunity as a grandson with a maternal grandfather who was a pastor, as a son whose father was a pastor. I have an opportunity to restore worship to my house. I have an opportunity to reaffirm the covenant to my generation and the next generation. And I have opportunity to remain faithful through it all that God will be honored and his people will be blessed. That is the word of the Lord for today. And the church said, Amen. Amen. Would you stand with me?